Some of you have no doubt uh, seen a TV show where someone does one of these food challenges. Maybe you've even tried them yourself. Restaurants are doing these more and more where they create a food that is so gigantic that obviously no one can eat it. And there's the challenge of if you can eat it all in one sitting, you get a t-shirt or you get your picture on a wall. Uh, yeah, don't pay for it. That's the ones I like is the ones you don't have to pay for. I don't want my picture on a wall, okay? I'm already, I'm a pretty big guy. The idea that I'll be immortalized as the guy who ate that much food is not something I'm really excited about. I'm not understanding why people want bragging rights to those things. But you can see just kind of these ridiculous things. That hamburger, there's a place in Memphis for a while that did that. And me and some men from church one night went and like seven of us ate a hamburger that big, just cutting off slices like a pie or a pizza, you know, to eat. And the thing about these is they're overwhelming when they show up at the table. If you were by yourself trying to eat this, imagine it hitting the table and just thinking, where do I even start? Like, what's the first step? This is a challenge that I don't know how to engage in. I see it in front of me. I would like it to be gone, but I, I don't even know. Like, do you just eat the bun? Like, it's too big to fit in your mouth. Are we doing it with fork and spoon? You know, like, how are we going to go about doing this? The challenge is just too much. But life is like that. Sometimes it feels like we are constantly being bombarded with problems. That we face things that are so huge, we don't know how to start them. Many of you are probably feeling this way about your taxes right now. You have a pile of papers at home that have lots of numbers on them. And there's form, by the way, the forms are all new this year. We had tax reform. And so now the forms don't look like what they used to look like. And there's different schedules and they have different numbers and names. If you're nerdy enough to pay attention to these things, I'm like, why did they change the name of the schedule? I got used to my EZ and now I got to do this. It's very frustrating. All of this stuff in front of you. If you've ever tried to purchase a house, it feels this way. What's my first step? You know, I, I go to the store, I just look at the five kinds of ketchup and I just grab one off the shelf and I buy it. But how do I buy a house? Where do I go to look for them? How do I figure out what's available? How do I start financing it? All of those things can frustrate us. Uh, getting a kid enrolled in school. There's all these things that we do where it is so frustrating and overwhelming. It is like life has put a giant hamburger in front of us and we do not know how to fit our mouth around it. What am I going to do? If we're honest, as Bruce and I first started talking about the relationship of our two churches coming together, it's a lot like that. We kind of created, I created a document full of a million questions. And I was like, Bruce, look through this. And, you know, I'm analyzing it and poking it. And I was like, give me your feelings on it. And Bruce answered like two or three of them was like, you know, let's talk about this. You know, like this is just a little much. There's too much going on here. Let's try to take this one step at a time. The reality is there's a lot of questions about trying to merge two entities together about how is this thing going to go and how is it going to work? And my guess is that some of you are feeling that tension today. Whether you've been here at the feast for a long time or you've been at Blackstone, you're thinking to yourself, how does all this work? Uh, how's this going to happen? How's that going to happen? You probably have little questions, even really paid. Like last week was such a big, exciting, emotional week that you're like, oh, I'll just wait till next week for that question. But in the back of your head, you're like, how are we going to handle X? And the reality is Bruce and I don't have all the answers to those questions or Janet and Fran and Preston and Alon and all the people we have in leadership. And we don't know how all those things are going to work. But I know it creates anxiety 
particularly it creates an anxiety of what's my role? What place do I have? How is this going to function? Am I even needed in this environment? Because frankly, just the way the math works, both of us have gone from smaller churches to a bigger church very quickly, like in a week. And the question is, well, how's that? What, what's my place? What's my role? What, am I even needed or am I just extra now? I used to be really needed and now maybe I'm just not feeling as needed. And I want to take us to a place in Scripture where we can kind of uh, deal with these problems. Last week we talked about the emotion of change and how it feels when we deal with change. Today we're going to deal with the mechanics of change and how we do it. Now, some of you are saying that sounds very boring, Caleb. Organizational change from a theological perspective in the book of Acts? That sounds like a lecture of a seminary I don't want to attend. But I promise we're going to try to keep it uh, focused on the very practical issues of how do you manage change and growth within a church body and how does that look and how does that work. And hopefully for those of you that work in different kinds of organizations and businesses, maybe it'll help you in your work life a little bit too. Acts 6.1. In those days, the days of the early church, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Uh, sometimes we make a mistake with these summary statements that begin a passage that we just read past them really quick and we just keep on moving. But Paul gives a, or Paul, Luke gives us a lot of really good information here about what's happening. The first thing he says, in those days, the numbers of disciples was increasing. Paul is making very, or Paul, Luke is making very clear that this church is growing and the growing is causing problems. Okay, when you grow, it causes issues. Generally speaking, the more you grow, the less your pants fit, Right? Uh, this was the more positive way to describe this, is pants getting too short. Some of us have other issues about growing and our pants not fitting anymore. But you've maybe had this experience with a child where you put the pants on them, they fit fine, they go to school, they play, they come home, you wash them, and the next week, they don't fit anymore. I mean, the kid has grown so quickly that now their ankles are showing out because their pants aren't big enough. As churches, as you grow, your pants don't fit anymore. There are structures and there are ways that you operate as a church that don't work as well when you have 50 people as when you had 25 people. And they're sure not going to work if you have 500 people versus 50 people. And so this is what this church is dealing with. And, and Luke gives us just this little hint here of what's going on when he says the church was growing. And it's, it's as if he assumes we know and that caused problems because growing always causes problems. We talk about them being good problems, but they're still problems nonetheless. And so one of the issues they're having is how they're caring for feeding their widows. This is a little obtuse for us because of our world being different. We live in a world that has a variety of social safety nets that try to provide for people as they get older, whether it's uh, pensions or 401ks or Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. We have lots of nonprofits and for-profit organizations that help folks as they age. Generally speaking, uh, many of us maybe have an older parent or a grandparent or someone who we don't have to worry that much about. We think about them and we want to make sure they're okay, but they have some kind of way to care for themselves, even just in the sort of government system of social security that we've created. 
This didn't exist in the ancient world. If you were an older woman, uh, particularly a widow, uh, you weren't going to just go get a job. The world still had sort of these sexist structures in place that finding employment as a woman was not easy, particularly an older woman. And if you were a widow and your husband had died, maybe you never had kids or your kids had passed, uh, you'd be very vulnerable. You'd be in very considerable trouble because it would be hard for you to find a way to pay for food and pay for housing and take care of your basic needs. And so the church said, we're going to take care of this. If you're a, a Bible student that stays in the Word, you probably know that in the pastoral epistles, there's a whole discussion about the roles that they keep of the widows, the list of widows that they take care of. And Paul has this funny conversation about, you know, if she's really good looking and she's young and she's got guys lining up around the block to marry her, don't take care of her like you take care of the other widow. She'll be fine. Trust me. You know, if she's eager to get remarried and there's guys eager to remarry her, it'll get taken care of. Uh, whereas he goes, you know, if there's an older lady who is not interested in being remarried and she knows she'll be single for the rest of her life, treat her differently. And Paul goes into all the great little minutiae of how they handle this widow's program. And this is what we have here. And this can be very confusing because we talk a lot about Jews and Gentiles. And you could think that we're talking about Jews and Gentiles again here, but we're not. Uh, this will get very boring in a minute for some of you, but we'll just explain this quickly. Uh, Jews in the first century, there were two kinds. There's what they call here Hebraic and Hellenistic Jews. And it was kind of how much they kept the old culture versus how much they adapt to the Greco-Roman culture they lived in broadly. Uh, we experience this sometimes with immigrant families. You probably have undoubtedly known an immigrant family who chose to speak their home language at the house and still cook like they do at the house and just really never adapted much to American society. Uh, we have neighbors who are Portuguese, and I get the sense that it is still little Portugal inside their living room. They speak Portuguese, they eat Portuguese food, nothing has changed for them, despite the fact they lived in Providence for 50 years. Uh, and these are the people we would call Hebraic Jews. They're speaking Aramaic, they study the scriptures in, in Hebrew, and they dress and they act and they eat like Hebrew Jewish people. Hellenized Jews would be the people that are more engaged in the culture around them. They would probably speak Greek at home instead of speaking Hebrew because Greek is the, the language of the people and the language of their society. They probably read the Bible out of the Subtuagent, a Greek translation of the Hebrew. Um, they would dress a little bit differently. They'd eat differently. This is not the kosher, not kosher stuff we talk about when we talk about Gentiles and Jews. This is just more style and spices and um, just uh, choices of types of dishes and all these kinds of things. Uh, to give you an example of this, in our Bible, James is probably what we call a Hebraic Jew. James is very, very Jewish and probably spoke Aramaic and is always talking about the Old Testament. Whereas Paul was a very Hellenized Jew. He, uh, even though he kept a lot of traditions, he kind of lives in both worlds. He speaks Greek fluently. He's a Roman citizen. Uh, he's able to get along. He reads Greek poetry. He knows Rome, you know, philosophy of the, the Greeks and the Romans. He's a Hellenized Jew. And what's happening here is a little bit of maybe not prejudice, but just naturally people separating themselves a little. Whoever is taking care of this widow's program that provides food for these ladies tends to go to the houses of the women who keep the old Hebrew traditions a little more frequently than he goes to the houses of the ladies who are speaking Greek and like reading Homer. 
because they're just, they're different. Those are kind of Greek Jews, and they're a little different than us. And so they're not taking as good care of them. And part of the problem is as the church grows, it's causing tension. Uh, we also have reason to believe that at the day of Pentecost, which is when the church started, there was all these travelers from around the world who were in Jerusalem, and many of them became Christians, and some of them just didn't, chose not to leave. They were pilgrims who had come for a short time, but now that the church was started in Jerusalem, they decided, hey, we're going to stay here and be part of this. And so now you have maybe these ladies that grew up in Rome or grew up in Athens or grew up in Corinth that are now moving into this area and they don't have family and the church is taking care of them, but the church isn't taking great care of them because they don't know them as well. Does this make sense? I feel like I've spent a lot of time on this, but we get the general problem, the growing pains of the early church of how do we make sure that all these ladies get the food that they need. So this is the complaint. This is the problem. And this is how they deal with it. So the 12 gathered around the disciples to get uh, the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, "It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables." Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Permenus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a, con a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The first thing uh, that we see in this story, which I think is really important for us, is that they begin with saying, what is the one thing we cannot do as we deal with this problem as a church? Uh, this can be helpful. Maybe this is, uh, sometimes we talk to our kids about spouses this way. Have your non-negotiables the things that you will not put up with, and use those to eliminate some of the options right off the bat. And so the question here for the church is, what's our non-negotiables? As we engage this new problem, as we try to deal with this really practical issue, how do we go about it? Well, the one thing we cannot do is distract the apostles from their main mission, which is the preaching of the Word of God. Now, this is really interesting for us as a church. Uh, not just here, but I think generally in American society, they say, what's the one thing that we cannot do without? And it is that our leaders are spending time in the Word of God and communicating the Word of God. That is the core of who we are. That is essential for us. It's interesting to me because they don't even have a New Testament yet. They're still working out of Isaiah and 1 Kings and Genesis when they're doing their sermons. But still, there's this, this belief that our leaders need to spend time in the Word of God. They also have apostles. They have men who literally have direct connections to Jesus and who are getting messages from God via visions. But still they say, no, 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 the most important thing for us is to time, spend time in the Word of God. Um, this mission focus is really important. Uh, for a minute, let's just think about this generally. If you work for any organization, you need to know what is the one thing that we do what are we about? And that is the one thing that cannot get sacrificed by all the other problems and all the other challenges in the world. Uh, if you work for an organization that helps provide food for people, or if you work for a business that, you know, makes paper clips, whatever, 
you got to have your mission, right? If you're in a paperclip company, making paperclips is the absolute most important thing that we can do. There are other issues that we might have to deal with, but if we stop making paperclips, we stop to be a functioning business. And as a church, if we stop engaging the word of God, we stop being a church. And we've got to make space for our leaders to do that. That's what's so fascinating to me here. They say it in almost a way that kind of bugs us. The apostles go, we're not going to wait tables. We're not going to become a waiter or a busboy. We've got to take care of this some other way because we need to spend time in the Word. And this is a holy, godly thing that's built up. Just to take a little sidetrack here for us, for those of us that grew up in churches of Christ, this is something I think we don't always do super great. I grew up in a lot of churches where our evaluation of the preacher was, is he visiting sick people enough? Did he have a nice bulletin article? Did he make sure that the plumber got taken care of? Were they cutting the grass really well? You know, how is, what's the, the, the landscape architect looking like? You know, like there's all these things that the preacher is supposed to do because, well, we hire him so he does all the crummy jobs that we don't want to do. And that is not the way the church is supposed to function. It's just really clear here in Scripture. Your leaders are to spend time in the Word of God. And if there's other little jobs that have to get done, let's find someone else to do them, lest the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God gets confiscated or gets confused and flustered by doing all this other little tiny stuff, like managing budgets and all that kind of stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not here preaching to tell you I don't want to do those things. I am a servant. I'm happy to do many things. But it's just an important vision thing, right? It's an important thing for any church. What are we about? And let's make sure our staff are about the most important thing that we're doing as an organization. And that's for anything in life. If you're in college right now as a student, reading your books and taking your tests is the most important thing, okay? Hanging out with other people, being social, that's great. That's not your job right now. Your job is to study. And so, <laughs> dad's a teacher, so... Um, so we have this, this matter of focusing kind of on the mission and that we want to make sure that the people that we put in place of leadership are people who are able to spend time in God's word and that they're doing that well. And that we, as a church, never forget we are here to understand and to share the word of God. Like that is our core function. And if we stop doing that, we're not doing anything. Um, the other thing, though, is delegation in this passage. What I love here, it's really easy to miss. There's double delegation here. The apostles go, we would like for some of you to pick the guys who are going to take care of this problem. Not we are going to pick the guys who are going to do this problem. We are delegating the delegation to somebody else. This is how hands-off the apostles are. They go, oh, you guys have a problem? Sure, some of you guys pick some more of you guys to handle this. We're not going to mess with this stuff. And it's just really interesting, a leadership style. And this is over and over and over in Scripture. Great leaders. Moses does it too. It's always about find somebody who can handle that job and hand it off to them. We were talking about worship today. I don't do a lot of worship planning because that's just, it's not me. It's not what I'm great at. Tori and Preston and Seth and, all, and Ray and all of our other folks, like, they handle this stuff awesome. And I am so happy to let them do it. I don't need to have my fingers in the middle of it. Um, but what's more interesting to me is that they create a direct connection here between complaint and solving of the complaint. This is something that could be easy to miss uh, if we don't read real carefully. But the apostles say, 
Some of you. Well, who's the you they're talking to? The people who are complaining, right? There were some of these Hellenistic folks that said, hey, our, our widows are not being taken care of. They come. And when I say complaint, do not get me wrong, I'm not saying they're whining. Okay, this is a legit complaint. Taking care of these widows is important. So it's not that they shouldn't complain about it. They're just the people bringing the problem to their attention. So they bring the problem to their attention, and immediately the disciple, the apostles say, okay, well, you guys pick some of your people, and we'll put them in charge of it. And this is really helpful. Who are the seven men they selected? Did they, um, as we go through this list, was it Abraham, David, Micah, Isaiah, Jacob, Josiah, and Adam? Were those the names? No, because all those names are, guess what? Jewish names. They're Hebrew names. None of their names are that. Instead, they pick uh, Stephen and uh, Timon or something. I mean, I don't even remember these names from, you know, these really pro procurus, these things that we don't even know how to pronounce, right? These great Greek names. And what they have done is they said, you Hellenized Greek people are worried about how your Greek widows are being taken care of, so we're going to pick Greek people to take care of the Greek problem. Uh, one of the commentaries I read this week said, quite simply, these seven men are probably the seven who led the complaint to the apostles saying, hey, we need this taken care of. So the apostles said, you're right, we do. Go do it. And this is, this is, this is could feel like the apostles just not take, just be like, whatever, you take care of it. But it's not that. It's not apathy. It's that there is a godly thing that happens when the conviction that says this needs to change is met with the conviction that I'm going to help it change. If you are the person who sees a problem that needs fixing, then you are already God-ordained to be in a great position to have the passion and the heart to fix the problem. And so many of us in life want the comment card, right? We want to go, oh, this is where we go to a restaurant. Oh, I really hated your service. You guys should fix that. Drop it in the box and walk away. And that's sometimes how we do it in church. You'll notice that we do not have a complaint box for a very good reason. <laughs> All right? If you have something you really feel like needs to be fixed, I would be love to work with you to help you leadership to take over fixing that thing for us. Right? And it's just kind of the way it works. And it's not, again, it's not just handing it off. It's saying if you have a conviction that that's important, then you also have the conviction to help us fix it. And so this is what the apostles immediately do. Is they go, okay, hey, let's take this, and boom, we'll spin it right back around, and we'll let you do it. You know, I feel, Pastor, I just feel like we really should repaint the fence. Awesome, I'll get you some paint. I'm thankful that you're leading that you know, ministry next week. That's just kind of the way you handle things. Because uh, that's good. I mean, that's the way we all chip in. All right, um, so let's talk about application. What does this all mean for us? What does this story tell us? One of the things it tells us is it's really good to be flexible. Okay? It is really good to be able to flex into a new position. Uh, there will be times where you will be asked to do things in life, in your job, in your home, whatever, that's not something you're used to doing. And it's okay to do something you're not used to doing. What I find really interesting here is the early church is so nimble and they create these ad hoc structures, right? Like, what is this? What are these seven men? What is their title? What is their job? We don't know. They're, they're widow feeding fixers, right? They had, hey, we had this problem. Let's create the structure. Boom, let's fix it. The apostles take it in, they process it, they come up with a plan, they execute it, and they go. 
Um, some of us really like to know how everything works ahead of time, right? I know some of you want a detailed plan about how everything is going to work. And so when you go to a leader in your job or in your church and you go, how's this going to work? And they go, I don't know. We're going to figure it out as we go. You go, oh, no, 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 no. Right? I can't do that. Well, the early church did that. Okay? This is just the way the Holy Spirit works. Too bad. You're going to have to get over it. Sometimes things just flex and things change and we have to learn how to adapt and how to roll with it. And so you create ad hoc structures that make things work, making it really nitty gritty for us. There are a lot of questions we might have about, so what's the leadership team of this combined church going to look like? How's that going to work? And how's the budget going to work? And how do we shape it? And where does the money go? And uh, what about space? Like today, we, we have a lot of people missing today, so there's actually room in the pews. But if they weren't missing, there'd be no rooms in the pews. Where are we going to worship? I don't know. We'll figure it out, right? We'll pick seven people to be a building committee next week. I don't know. Like space is something we have to be flexible on. Uh, how do we handle communion? We're down, we're to two communion things now. How do we do traffic patterns? What do we do with these chairs on the side? Do we keep them or do we not keep them? These prayer cards, when I fill them out, I feel like it's really not, there's very confusion at the end of service. I don't know how it's going to go. All of these are little things that are kinks that we're going to have to work out. And having the flexibility to go, hey, here's a new problem. Let's come up with an ad hoc solution. If it doesn't work, we'll come up with another ad hoc solution. And eventually we'll get to a good place. That flexibility and that spirit of flexibility is really important. Um, the other thing I think we can take from this is finding ways to plug people in. If you've ever traveled internationally, you'll know that this pain. Everybody in the world does not use electric plugs like we do. Maybe this is new to some of you. But as you can see here, there's at least uh, there's 12 here, but I think there's 20, 25 different types of electrical plugs in the world. And you can't just plug your cell phone you go to England, you can't just plug it into the wall. You have to have an adapter that changes the plug. Different shaped plugs, different sizes. And we use this phrase, well, we want to plug you into something. The reality is we are going to face new problems that are going to have new weird shaped plugs. And the beauty of God's church is some of you are shaped exactly right for those things. If you say, well, I don't know where I fit... The, the, the reality is God will probably hand us a problem that fits perfectly to you soon enough. Do not worry. Um, in the church, this is the way it works. This is why we're many different parts that all fit into one body. Um, there's always a place for people to be used. We just got to think about it. We got to talk about it. And here's the reality. Again, I'm putting a lot on your plate today. I would love if I had the wisdom to go to every one of you and go, I have this problem and I know you have this skill and we'd love to plug you in at this spot. But you know what works even better is when you go, hey, I'm this kind of plug and I see this kind of hole. Can I fill it? And I go, yes, absolutely. Great. Go. Brendan, you are great at this. Last week, Brendan came up to me and goes, all right, listen, I've been looking around. Here's three things that I do well. <laughs> and um, if you want me to do any of those three things, I'm willing to help out. And I was like, yes. Right? This is instead of me like, you know, like casting straws on the ground and trying divination to figure out what he's good at. He says, hey, this is me. Uh, have that spirit. Think to yourself, what am I good at? Where can I fit in? And have a volunteer spirit. These seven guys said, hey, we have a problem. They go, well, hey, figure it out yourselves. And they go, okay, well, we'll do this committee. And they said, awesome, go with it. And this is all connected, again, to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is all through Luke. This is the great thing about Luke and Acts. It's sprinkled in and you don't even see it. Here, their criteria, find some men who are full of the Holy Spirit. 
says it twice. And then they lay hands on them and pray over them as they go out. This is code in the Bible for Holy Spirit. This idea of God's guiding presence in our life. God's movement in our hearts. God's ability to shape us and direct us. And one of the things that happens when we trust the Holy Spirit is that we also trust people. Um, I don't know if you're great at trusting people, but you can't really trust the Holy Spirit and not trust people too. Because a lot of times people are the way the Holy Spirit's going to fix your problem. Say, God, I'm really lonely or I need some comfort. Well, he's probably going to send a person to you to help you deal with that. We would all like manifestations of God and this great glorious vision to take care of our problem, but usually it's taken care of with people. In this, pro this situation, they say we need these widows fed. How's it going to happen? These seven men. Now, if the apostles are constantly looking over their shoulder and telling them how to do this job, the apostles might as well have waited the tables and taken care of it themselves, right? There is the implication here. The apostles said, again, double delegation. The apostles said, we trust you all to pick some people. And then that group of people trusted seven to do the job. And they said, we're praying over you. May the Spirit be with you. We trust you. We trust the Spirit. Go do it. And then the apostles went back to reading the Bible and writing their, their, their sermons. And they just trusted these guys were going to get it done. This is going to be the reality for us. Um, you are going to have new leaders in your life. If you're in this room, you will have new leaders in your life as part of this church that you did not have a month ago. And you're going to have to learn to trust them. And for the leaders in our churches... We're going to have to trust new people to get new jobs done. And it's going to be like, well, hey, I'm going to give this to you, and I don't know you hardly. <laughs> I don't know how this is going to work, but I trust the Holy Spirit is going to work in this. And trusting the Spirit means trusting people. And it's just, uh, we just have to have open hearts for that, right? The hearts to say, I trust that you can do this job and that we can work together and work in teams because as a church gets bigger, it gets bigger problems, and it needs more hands on deck, and it needs more involvement. And so we all have to chip in and figure out how that works. Uh, I want to end with this. So this whole sermon, how do we handle change as an organization? How do we handle as a church? How do we operate in a way that deals with things? And we, we talked about all this stuff, keeping your mission first, trusting other people, all these little pieces. But I love what uh, Luke gives us a summary at the end. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and the large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's being priests, uh, Jewish priests at the temple. Uh, he just talks about this enormous growth that happens because they delegated things and they trusted people and they kept on mission. It is not a mistake that word of God appear. Uh, make sure I get this right. Yeah, it's not a mistake that word of God is the thing that spreads, right? They say we must keep first the preaching of the word of God, and then surprise, the word of God spread. As we talk about our future together, we want the word of God to spread. We want to see rapid growth of God's kingdom. We want to see new faces. Um, I'm really terrible. Last week was awesome, and I love seeing you all again, but I'm already starting to think, okay, so now that this growth has happened, who's the next, you know, like, it's always, who's next? What's up next? Where's the new folks? And we have to continue to be um, nimble and willing and flexible. Because when we do those things, and then we allow our leaders to be focused on spreading the word of God, then all of a sudden things start to click. 
and we see God's kingdom grow up into these kind of mighty trees of, of his goodness and his kindness and love. And it's exciting. That's why you do these things, right? It's so that you can see mission advance. And we all do that together, all of us in our own role, in our own space. And having the flexibility and willingness to uh, attack those challenges is something I want to encourage in all of us today. Uh, oh, I answered this one, I think, during the sermon. Uh, so here I have a question about how we run classes here at church. Is that right? Uh, do the same people run the children's classes? Are we talking about here at the feast, whoever asked this question? Yes. So, yeah, our children's classes, here's how we run them. Um, I know traditionally Blackstone, I think you guys did a quarter at a time often or something like that. Uh, we tend to do it. Um, we want people not to be out of worship too long in a row. So what we tend to do is we have a rotation of teachers, and we ask you to teach once, one Sunday, and then you have some Sundays off, and then you come back. The reality of that lately for us has been we run two classes, and we have seven or eight teachers. So it generally means people teach about once a month. They teach, say, the first Sunday of the month, and then the second, third, and fourth. They're here to worship, and then they go back in on the first. Um, if we can add more teachers, we'd love to get to a place where people only have to do it every six weeks or every eight weeks. It's just about adding teachers properly. Um, so, yeah, and that's something we're really open to and something we'll work through. We have some software we use. We can help guide you through it. We have found it very helpful because you can block off your calendar dates about days you're not available and you are available, and we can all communicate on that stuff electronically. I know for some of you, you go, oh, electronics and apps. We'll, we'll help you figure it out. We can do it, with, you know, regardlessly. Uh, also, and I don't, I don't know if this is normal, we do ask everyone to do an easy BCI background check before they do our kids' classes. It's just an important safety check thing that we do. Uh, and we can help you through that process. We can even pay for it if you need. Uh, it's like five bucks and you got to go to the courthouse. And the police run your numbers real quick. I think probably Carolyn can help us figure out how to get this done too. Carolyn works with the police, so 